0: You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney.
1: All right, good evening, everyone. Before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the, to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, and as we share our own knowledge of teaching, learning, and research practices within the university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I would also like to invite everyone tonight to uh, tweet, if they tweet, uh, using the hashtag warmingworld and tagging SEI Sydney and um, at Sydneyideas. All right, so my name is Frances Flanagan and I'm the research director at United Voice as well as being a research affiliate of the Sydney Environment Institute. And I'm here tonight to introduce the final instalment of our lecture series, Living in a Warming World, and offer a few brief reflections on the journey we've come through so far. This was a series convened with the intention of digging beneath the all too depressing national political frame and bringing together people who are getting on with the practical business of creating a more equal, democratic and sustainable future for Australia. The speakers in this series have been people of a particular kind – They've been impatient. They have refused to wait for national permission to start their work. They've been not enchanted by economic myths of rising tides that lifted little boats. They're not beguiled by corporate responsibility fantasies, the idea that it's possible to rapaciously extract resources from the commons and pollute with one hand and somehow even up the ledger by giving generous community funds and charity grants with the other. Nor were they content with the transient offerings of togetherness most commonly available in our society, neither the pleasures of shared consumption of cheap material goods, nor the gratifications that come from consuming equally cheap political messages, the kind that are focus-grouped and targeted to deliver a short-term hit of reinforced assumptions devoid of any genuine offering of shared democratic power or responsibility.' Instead, we heard from people for whom the projects of building democratic solidarity, equality and environmental rejuvenation were never separate, but were always inherently entwined and mutually reinforcing. People who immediately recognised that the transition to a 100% renewable energy system was not technological or scientific as a challenge. It was a political one, and a political one of a particular kind. It wasn't a challenge about flicking the switch from one energy source to another, it was about remaking Australia in a manner that offered both economic and political equality as never before. That perspective meant that, in every lecture we heard, there were a few features of the usual conversations about inequality and environmental change that were missing. We didn't hear much about emissions targets and statistics, nor about international agreements, nor about communication narratives and words that work. Rather, we heard stories of places and the people who dwelled in them and the struggles they engaged in over how power was ordered and shared. We heard about places that were hard and hot to live and work in like the warehouses and greenhouses where NUW members worked in northern Australia or the early learning centres in the most socio-economically disadvantaged parts of Penrith where children don't get to go outside in summer because the temperature on the softball coverings of their playground is over 90 degrees in the sun. We heard about poorly thermally designed houses on the urban fringes, designed on the cheap by private developers without eaves or cooling features because they were built for profit and not for livability. In these places, it isn't just the cost of air conditioning that's a barrier to health and comfort, it's the removal of shade giving trees, of drinking fountains, and public transport that would enable people to get to pools, the river, or shopping centres to cool them down. We didn't hear about victims, though. We heard about citizens in motion, people who organise door-to-door through networks like the Sydney Alliance to contest the distribution of power that has seen the elderly, the very people most vulnerable to heat stress, being moved from social housing in the centre to some of the very hottest parts of the city. Citizens who have looked on the premium ecological enclaves that have become a feature of Sydney, available for purchase by the wealthy alone, and said, this is not the city that we want. We heard from an organised and ambitious collective of solar citizens demanding greater control for everyday people over their energy needs and pushing back against the power of big energy companies. And we heard about workers coming together to create cooperative power, an enterprise collective owned by members of unions, community groups and NGOs that's taking back the commons, combating the cost of living pressures and forging an inclusive transition to clean energy. And we heard about the 90 odd community owned renewable energy projects that sit beside them across Australia. We heard about the resourcefulness and resilience of the people of Euroa in regional Victoria, as well as the Yorta Yorta people on the Murray, Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities both marshalling their knowledge, connection, resources and ingenuity to protect and strengthen the places that they love and care about. So as well as statistics, there was one thing that was strikingly absent from the conversation, and that was any preoccupation with disciplinary boundaries or institutional competition. We have heard from and will hear from tonight a geographer, a thermoregulationary physiologist, a designer, a political theorist, a civil servant, an anthropologist, a trade unionist, a lawyer, a writer, a colonel, and heads of two NGOs, one local and one global. All of them spoke from a viewpoint that was informed by one or more disciplinary backgrounds, but none fixated on their particular vocabulary and mentality as being more right than others. I do wonder if this would be the case if we'd invited an economist. What they shared was intellectual courage and the intestinal fortitude required to think about these knotty and joined-up challenges and say, what can I bring from where I stand? And to act on that answer with steady determination. In most cases, their philosophies of change were inchoate rather than explicit, but I do want to share one, and that was the one articulated by Kate Orty, the ACT Commissioner on Sustainability and the Environment, that I think can be said to commonly apply to all our speakers, and that was this. Start where you are, organise and show what you did. When taken together, I want to suggest, perhaps audaciously, that these speakers provide a glimpse of the contours of a new order that is coming into being. This is a transition from a fossil fuel extractivist private interest-based inequality order to a new egalitarian order that is founded on renewables, that is participatory, that is egalitarian, and that is grounded in, or not, although not confined by, the local of course, like any historical transformation, it is not linear and it is not simple, and I would be a terrible historian if I suggested that it was wholly new. There are many fold and long historical continuities between the forms of participatory and non-extractivist politics we've heard about in this series, and both our non-Indigenous and Indigenous pasts. But whether we call it a resurgence, or whether we call it a revolution, it's important to understand that this movement is one with only occasional banners – and banners that, when they are unfurled, rarely fit the full expanse of the endeavour that is being undertaken. What is taking place is a shift on many stages, in town halls and local libraries, around dinner tables, on rooftops and footpaths in the country where we live, and I suspect we're here tonight in a few office blocks, universities and boardrooms too. Its fruits will rarely be on gaudy display in political slogans, and they will endure beyond any particular election cycle. They will be in the slow recalibration and raising of expectations among Australian citizens. The rebuilding of a shared sense that we can and must have a society that is in service to human and environmental flourishing. And from that vision flows demands for the redistribution of power in our economies, cities, workplaces, businesses and professions. So, before I go and hand over to Chris for tonight's conversation, I want to give a very deep and sincere thank you to Sydney Ideas and the Sydney Environment Institute for hosting this series, the co-directors David Schlossberg and Ian McCalman, as well as Anastasia Mortimer, Eloise Fetterplace, and most especially the marvellous, creative and passionate artist, thinker, and Deputy Director of SEI, Michelson-Anne, who co-devised this series with me over many conversations, and she was utterly instrumental in making it happen. I would also like to thank Chris Wright, who has so ably chaired and led the discussions. Um, he will do the same tonight. Uh, he is, if you don't know him already, a world expert on uh, corporations and responses to climate change. Um, so I'll leave you in his good hands tonight. But for me, thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Francis, for that marvellous review of the... Uh of the last three events in this series on Living in a Warming World. And um, thank you also for being involved in organising this and creating it because it has been a marvellous series. So tonight um, our speakers uh, and panel discussion are going to explore the vexed and and very timely issue, I think, of professional obligations in an age of of climate change or climate crisis. Uh, And as as we're probably all aware... Um, Climate change poses an existential threat to our society and our way of life, and to many of the species that live on this planet. Uh, It also poses a grand challenge to organisations and professions in terms of what we do and how we see our role in a, a climate challenged society. Going back to the very definition of the classical profession is the idea of altruism and public service. Uh, from the sort of the classical professions in medicine and engineering uh, and law through the more uh, sort of neo-professions, I guess modern professions, accounting and professional services, um, there was the core logic underlying the idea of the profession uh, around providing expertise for the common good uh, for the public. The professionals must act ethically uh, in accordance with relevant codes and standards. But with our society threatened with the collapse of the natural systems that support life on this planet and the myriad implications of what that might mean for a disrupted earth in terms of extreme weather events, uh, economic collapse, mass migration, changed disease vectors, geopolitical tensions and wars, uh, will these appeals to ethical behaviour be sufficient? Uh, For instance, in our current world, it's possible... Is it possible to be an ethical professional whilst also providing advice that supports industries like the fossil fuel sector? I don't know if anybody saw the Senate inquiry this last week uh, where uh, inquiry into the Great Barrier Reef Foundation where a former head of ESO Australia proclaimed that we couldn't blame fossil fuel companies for climate change, it was all of us. Fossil fuel industries were simply providing the goods and services that we all demanded. Interesting take on sort of the ethics of the debate around climate change currently. How should professional standards and codes of ethics shift in response to the catastrophic threat that climate change now poses? How have certain professionals been implicated in perpetuating and legitimising environmentally destructive acts? And is indeed the classical uh, concept of the profession still relevant in a neoliberal era? in which the dominant justification, in fact, the only justification, it seems, in the public debate, is the market and shareholder value. So uh, can we, in essence, reclaim a more traditional altruistic conception of the profession acting for social and environmental well-being, even when this means saying no to profit and commercial expedience? So these are some of the questions hopefully we'll be discussing tonight and looking at, Um, and we have an outstanding panel of speakers to, to consider these issues. So I'm going to introduce our three speakers now rather than jumping up after each speaker has spoken, which is a bit uh, disruptive. So I'll go through each of the three speakers, outline uh, uh, an intro for each of them, and then I'm going to ask each of them to speak for around sort of 10 minutes or so, um, after which we'll have a a short sort of panel discussion and then we'll open up the floor to questions and answers. So our first speaker tonight is Anna Crean. Anna is an award-winning Melbourne-based journalist, essayist, fiction writer and poet, um, her book, Night Games, Sex, Power and Sport, won the 2014 William Hill Sports Book of the Year in the UK, uh, and it's in fact being currently developed into a TV miniseries. Uh, she's also the author of what I think is one of the best pieces of writing I've seen on the catastrophic coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef, her quarterly essay, The Long Goodbye, Coal, Coral and Australia's Climate Deadlock, which I would thoroughly recommend everybody reads if you haven't already. Uh, Her other publications include Into the Woods, The Battle for Tasmania's Forests, Boo's Territory, and another quarterly essay, Us and Them, on the Importance of Animals. And Anna is currently working on a novel due to be published early 2019. I think you're working on that today. (laughs) Okay, our second speaker, David Ritter, is well known to uh, Sydney Environment Institute audiences. Uh, David is, of course, the Chief Executive Officer of Greenpeace Australia. Uh, Australia Pacific, where he's worked tirelessly over the last decade campaigning against the expansion of the fossil fuel sector. Uh, and he's an affiliate of both Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Democracy Network, and the author of the recently published book, The Cold Truth, uh, again thoroughly recommended, uh, which explores our nation's fossil fuel fetish and the role of some professions in encouraging that madness. Okay, so as I outlined, the plan is for each speaker to speak for around ten minutes or so, and uh, then we'll go to a panel discussion and then Q and A. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Anna Crean.
3: Hi, thanks for coming. Um, I haven't. uh, I'm not as polished as Francis, I'm afraid. Um, It was sort of. These are more sort of my musings on what, it, what my professional obligations might be as a journalist to climate change and my professional obligations full stop as a writer. Uh, there's a fantastic quote that I um, like to live by when it comes to climate change and it's by American journalist David Roberts and he wrote, Climate change is not a story but a background condition for all future stories. So... It's my view that all journalists, not just the uh, the niche of an environment writer, needs to understand the science of climate change, the consequences, the ideological battle that we're currently dealing with and consider how it affects their beat. And that beat does not necessarily mean that the small environmental bureau, which has become, I guess, not as a result, a fault of its own, but probably due to mastheads and um, captain calls... Um, a niche a uh, topic that is sort of only merely meant to be relevant to say bird watchers or environmentalists, whereas climate change, I think we all know um, is a is a yeah, all encompassing uh, issue that we'll, we all need to face so uh, why isn 't this done? I guess why isn't why do I not read the paper in the mornings and get the sense that um, climate change is the foundation of all the stories that have been written that day and I guess because A, it's hard, it's brain-crunching work, it's complex, multifaceted, it's not just science, you need to understand business, economics, culture, health, uh, urban planning, Uh, good environmental reporting requires a flexible mind to get a grasp of these issues and understand how they interlink. Um, When I was starting out as a journalist, I used to uh, do this kind of silly thing where I would lay the newspapers out and I would join the stories. So I'd go, oh, well, that story is linked to that story and that story is linked to that story until the entire paper was borderless in the sense that I... And I'm not saying that... You know, I I understand that traditional media needs to set a kind of boundary around each story, but to me it was just fascinating how they were not, ever, just standing on their own. They all were interlaced and they all had consequences and flow-down effects to one another. And I think, similarly, that's what we need in the media landscape today. We need people to make connections and not to the overwhelming way that the internet seems to do, which is just puts you into a never-ending rabbit hole um, to the point by the end of it you feel like you're brain dead. But um, there needs to be you need to have a narrator, you need to have a guide, a good writer, I think, that's not just um, good at stats and good at facts and all that kind of stuff, but it's good at writing, uh, good at telling a story, good at breathing life into the story, at listening to dialogue, at colouring in the people and the characters and the loss um, and reminding people what they had before they lose it. Um, And I guess, in a sense, that there is a reason why... I think The New Yorker continues strongly today why certain journalism uh, um, has that uh, ability and that strength and that reach, while others, you know, are literally just clickbait and continually losing their grip on the treadmill of journalism. Why else is climate change difficult? I guess because it's slow-moving. Um, you know you can't report on it like the stock market to a certain degree. It does not happen quickly. Um, there's also many people say why don't we write about climate change and people often will say well it's gloomy um, there's extinctions oil spills change your habits dead trees hard to grasp as in parts per billion full of future projections uh, and again I struggle with this because it's not as if you look at art into the media landscape and see good news um, it, you know, this is, this is not a... Uh, journalists don't do good news. We do bad news. So we need to find a way to tell the story appropriately, um, not dryly and engagingly. Um, so I guess when I do my journalism, I don't really approach it... As a climate, do I, I mean, how am I going to write about climate change? Or how am I going to write about the forest of Tasmania? Or how am I going to write about sexual assault in NRL and AFL? I write it in a way that I like, I challenge myself. I, I will always fight myself. I will fight my own assumptions. I will fight my biases. I will fight... Um, things that I think are right or things that I never even thought to question and I think that is a powerful way to engage an audience because there is so much telling of how one ought to think these days and the uncertainty and the quickness to get on board or on side of a particular issue I think is uh, repelling. I think it leaves people in a lurch and it makes people tune out. So... My, my style as a writer is to be an uncertain narrator, to try and have a moral compass, but not to really find that point until the very end. Um, it may be the feeling that I started out with, the instinct that I started out with, but I will challenge that instinct every step of the way. Um, and by, by doing this, I've learned lots of things so far in my career. Um, one of the biggest lessons I learned from uh, Into the Woods, the Tasmanian Forest Battles, was that it was um, a story that had been reported over and over and over and over and over for decades. But it was a story that was a false battleground. It was always pitching loggers against activists. Um, And it was the perfect false battleground for people who had their fingers in the pot. Um, the reality was that it was woodchippers against loggers um, but fueling the fire for loggers to turn them and turn them loose against the activists. And that was an incredible realisation to have, to see. And then you look around and you see the false dichotomies everywhere and the false choices, environment or jobs, um, the way that traditional media often presents those ideas as if there is no other way to think or no other way to be. I found really disappointing and also really freeing when I saw it. When I saw the formula, I realised how I could reel my way out of that net and and go a new way. So climate change does not belong in the environmental box. We, I think most of us here would know that it belongs in jobs, manufacturing, international diplomacy, education, housing... Um, Too often, why aren't we there yet? I guess there was that, um, there was the 1990 coalition of fossil fuel companies who developed a campaign that was called Reposition Global Warming as Theory, Not Fact. And unfortunately, that is an active campaign that remains today. Um, Facts need to be balanced, yes, Uh, a journalist always needs to do that but not opinions. Economist and writer Paul Krugman used to joke on the shape of the world, opinions differ. Um, and I've, unfortunately, I still feel as though the traditional media landscape, and to their detriment as well, I mean, it's not as if they're gaining readers, are still stuck on this particular premise. Um, Elizabeth Colbert wrote quite wonderfully about this when she was asked, you know, how does she get around, how does she deal with this concept that she has to be fair, and she wrote, the way I understand things, journalistic balance does not require giving equal time to those who argue, for example, that HIV does not cause AIDS, or smoking does not cause lung disease, Anyone who argues that CO2 does not cause global warming is pretty much by definition unqualified to pass judgment on the latest scientific findings. Why reporters have continued to quote these people as if they have a claim to scientific objectivity, I'm not sure. But I don't think the corrective is for journalists to become activists, though I'm certainly in favour of their doing so if they want to. It is simply to apply the standards of journalism fairly and rigorously often the charge of activism is uh, given to journalists who would say that climate, da- climate change is fact and they're going to build from that foundation. So I had this interesting situation when I was writing the quarterly essay and I was just mentioning before that I was so dinic- uh, cynical and um, had very little faith in politics and I was also feeling like I'd hit the bottom. Um, And, you know, I I guess you'd still call it this lingering hope. I just assumed, despite all the ridiculousness, we would have an energy policy in place by now. Um, But the bottom has not been hit, clearly. Um, So I did have these interesting... The quarterly essay has this great... Uh, method of answer and response so there's feedback that's sent in and then I get to respond to that feedback which is really a fantastic form and um, not done enough I think in journalism not done, with, you know, it's done with trolls but um, it's not done on an, as an intellectual exercise and uh, it's a fantastic exercise for me and for any writer because You have to question yourself. You get these smart, intelligent uh, responses that challenge you. And, um, you know, I had one such a response that challenged me on my uh, summary of the energy policy and the energy climate and um, was um, accused of not talking about nuclear and putting that into the mix. So... And I think that's probably, again, where I find... So I had to think about this quite a lot. I did stomp around the house quite a lot because I do know that I, I did have a pile of books on nuclear and I looked at them and I said, I can't do nuclear. I am, I am already drowning as it is with information. Um, so I was aware that I had left out a pertinent angle of the energy policy. But then there was also another thought of saying of my asking myself, so why did I leave it out? And then I realised it's about it's this sense of purity. There is no compromise, and there was this attack from, from this particular writer on the Finkel report, saying it was not it's not pure science. And I was and I thought about it and I thought about it. And I said yes, but it was as politically pal- palatable as it could possibly be for the time that we're in, and yet. It hasn't gone through, so I'm just in that sense. I just want to say that I think journalists should always um, contemplate their failings, and it's not a very uh, fun way to live. Um, and it's, uh, but you don't see it enough in journalism. You don't see enough of, you're right, mea culpa. I want to go back. I'm going to look at that but I'm also going to try and understand why I had that gap in my reporting and what was it that led me to that gap. So, as a writer, being an ethical writer, I think it's about being human, uh, having flaws to oneself, but also being incredibly and crucially aware of those flaws, hence why I'm not on Twitter. Um, How I get very scared when someone says, please feel free to Twitter. Um, I... I, I think we live in such a reactionary society and I, I'm a big believer of the think-before-you-speak, um, let alone think-before-you-publish uh, um, ilk. And I think um, journalism is really struggling with this immediacy and there's, and uh, you can really trace um, many of uh, the failures of journalism, the rise of fake news the degradation of democracy, um, distrust in our poli- uh, political uh, landscape, you can trace a lot of it to the very fast-moving world that we're now in. Um, a great technical ri- technology writer, I can't can not find her name later in the recesses of my memory, wrote that, yes, we can all ta- talk now, but perhaps we're talking too fast and perhaps we're not ready to talk. So there's this sense that we have opened up a can of worms and it is, um, you know, of course it comes at the same time as climate change and we are all struggling with a lot of different tangled ends and trying to smooth them out. So when you consider smackdowns on TV shows like Q&A, um, which I call in the quarterly essay, a Punch and Judy show between the left and the right, um, you eventually you just come to realise that it doesn't matter if British physicist Brian Cox, who is irrefutably better placed to judge climate science, tells One Nation's uh, Malcolm Roberts that global warming is real and human caused. It doesn't matter because Roberts does not see the science. He sees the scenario in which all the Brian Coxes of the world are infinitely more powerful than all the Gina reinharts He sees a future in which a lauded Green senator might say, I told you so, and that's scarier than a planet with a fever. So when uh, Gina Reinhart floats ideas that the economy is going to fail and people need to start um, considering that East Africans work for $2 a day and all that kind of stuff, when she says the sky will fall in on Australia if attempts are made to regulate and rein in the mining sector, well, she's right in a way. It will fall in on her idea of Australia. It will fall in on her idea, um, the country, her father, the grazier iron ore magnate that he showed her what lies underneath underneath it. It is is at risk for her. Laying out the red carpet isn't just about profit and growth, it's about entitlement. So the world view over climate change is at a crisis point. Holding one worldview are those who see global warming as a profound threat and feel a responsibility to mitigate it. And within this, there's also a palpable sense of excitement about the opportunity the crisis may bring to reset global priorities so that profit is not centre stage. And it is this latter notion that those holding the opposite worldview fear. They do not feel threatened by climate change, but by the proposed solutions to it. So it's ideology. And that's a truth in itself. And until... I think the t- traditional news media landscape acknowledges this identity politics, this ideological warfare, these culture wars. I don't think we're going to get anywhere on the coverage of, uh, honest coverage of climate change. So, in a sense, engaging in conversations about precautionary principle and the role of uncertainty and scepticism in science hasn't worked. And it's said that climate change journalism needs stories not data, not statistics, uh, to get through. And this is another thing where I find a real difficult conundrum. When I was writing about the reef, you would meet scientists who would say, off the record, I don't know, as in, I don't think it's going to survive, no matter what we do. I think maybe only 20% will survive. But don't put that in your story, because we need to maintain we need to hold hope and that is the trickiest thing of all as a journalist uh, is it my job to keep hope afloat Uh, is it my job to lay out the facts or is it my job also to say some people are gloomier than others Uh, and I still wrestle with that quite often so In terms of climate change journalism, I have a few mottos that I like to live by. Um, Brewer of binaries, false battlegrounds. Um, I'm also very interested in green politics versus uh, black politics and how they might intersect and how they might actually blow up. Um, In considering, say, the the thesis of Marsha Langton when it comes to... um, you know, the quiet revolution, indigenous people and the resources booms, which I found really uh, illuminating and could understand it from a very different perspective afterwards. Um, My other motto is be aware of false choices, be honest, not politically correct, and always, always, always have empathy.
4: feel ever so slightly bad, having been exhorted to always have empathy, to approach the lectern wearing a T-shirt that tells our new Prime Minister, that is unless something unexpected has happened today, uh, to get his hand off it. Um, not a lot of empathy there. Look, I, I want to um, uh, talk to five things uh, for about two minutes each. Um And each of those bears upon the question of professional obligations in an age of climate change. Um, The first is really uh, reflecting on a lunch I went to early last year at uh, an event convened by an organisation known as the Association of Associations Does anybody know the association of associations? Tell me you do. No, of course you don't. So the qualification to be at the association of associations is that you must come from an association that represents other associations. Now, what this uh, somewhat... um Opaque set of criteria means that you can have the chair of the Candle Makers Federation of Australian Candle Maker Associations sitting next to the CEO of the uh, Arthritis uh, Oversight Group of the Australian Arthritis Associations Collective, or something. There is nothing else that anybody has in common. So you genuinely sit next to people with whom you have nothing whatever. So the At this lunch, I sat on one side. It was whatever the peak body is of celiacs in Australia and the other side was tourism. Now, there is not immediately a lot that one can easily engage everyone in the same conversation there except, I guess, in the provision of uh, menus for the wheat intolerant in Australian hotels. There we could make common conversation. And I I was speaking at this lunch and wondering... How, how to address, and it's the point Anna raises really, how do, you, how do you talk about climate change? And so I simply said, well, it is great to be here today in a room full of climate change organisations. And there was a sort of slight free song in the room as people thought, oh, he's been badly briefed, he doesn't know where he is. But... <laughs> the point for all of those ceos of associations of associations that were there is what's your plan how do you look after arthritis in a 4 degree world what does it mean to be a celiac in a 4 degree world how do you run tourism in a 4 degree world it is all simply meaningless it's all blown away by the reality that civilization in its organized form as we know it breaks down and you watch as these ceos of the organizations that comprise the association of associations make a note to themselves must have plan for breakdown of global civilization <laughs> um, But that that is the, the sombre reality. So that's point number one. Every association of professionals is a climate change association. Point number two. It is extraordinary how many businesses and, dare I say it, educational institutions are actively contributing their money to propping up the fossil fuel hegemony. When is the last time that all of those associate members and members of the Business Council of Australia or APIA or the Minerals Council actually checked out what their dollars were doing. Let us use an example that is close to my heart. I'm a proud graduate of the University of Western Australia. What I learnt from the historians and lawyers in that place, and indeed from my fellow students, continues to inform what I do and what I think every single day. I loved the lectures there. I was married in the grounds of that university. It has a spiritual meaning to me. Its motto is seek wisdom. So why is that university, an associate member of the Minerals Council of Australia, and of the Australian Petroleum Producers Association. Organisations which have, in a persistent way, lobbied to frustrate progress on climate change in Australia and to nobble the charities that advocate for action. Why? It is a disgrace. It is an absolute disgrace. But it doesn't simply apply to my university, the University of Western Australia. It applies to law firms. It applies to accountants. It applies to any organisation that for some narrow, venal interest has decided that there is something to be gained by putting some dollars towards one of those organisations. And anyone who belongs to any of those organisations should be questioning that egregious misallocation of resources. Point two. Point three. What about those who are providing commercial services? This is not an obligation. You do not have to sell your services, your expertise, to those who are shoving the planet towards the precipice. Now, a little while ago, a a researcher in my office, uh, at my request, put together a little briefing on the law firms around Australia that proudly boast of servicing project approvals. Note the language. Thank you again, Anna Crean, for that marvellous quarterly essay. Do buy it. Do read it. Project approvals for the coal industry. Oh, well, isn't that something to be proud of? Good on you. That's good for the billable units in it. You do not have to sell your services and sell your labour to industries that are driving us towards the end of civilisation as we know it. And the good news there is having uh, put together this book, The Cold Truth, that that Chris mentioned earlier on, that was published earlier this year. And I've done a series of uh, book events around the country around it. And quite a number of times, I've had people sidle up at the end and describe to me an act of what we might term professional resistance, by which I mean not paid resistance, but the resistance of someone in their professional context. So there was the uh, young woman who works at one of the big four accountancy firms who came up and described the actions she had taken to try and frustrate internally her big four accountancy firm from offering services to a coal company and and she actively pointed out how it was against various bits of corporate rhetoric that they uh, had in play. That is an act of resistance. There was the uh, person who worked for an IT company who told me that their internal policy was that they simply did not pitch for any work at any fossil fuel company. That was simply a decision that they had made. An additional person, a third person who came up and said in the context of her business she had interrupted a tender process and gone to the partnership to say we should not be tendering for this work because it was a controversial company and I said, oh, which company? And she said, Adani. Now these are steps being taken by Australian citizens in their professional contexts which add up to a mass denigration of the social license of the fossil fuel industry and as such are extraordinarily important. And we should talk about them without mentioning names in order to normalize them. Because this is what is necessary all, not all of this work can be done by Greenpeace activists up flagpoles in Canberra or people who are employed to work for ACF or GetUp or Greenpeace. There have to be these billion acts of everyday courage, of everyday resistance in normal professional context. Final two things to say, and that's my five points. So the, the, the fourth one is a specific comment about the law. I'm very sorry, we've got a fantastic replacement, though I'm very sorry Sarah Barker isn't here to talk about this this evening, but my very quick take on the law is this. If you are a lawyer here, or you are in some way involved in this profession, and you look back on the 21st century and we fail to halt runaway climate change, what exactly was the point of the common law I mean, I am sorry, but if this benighted legal system is unable to halt the deterioration of the conditions that enable civilised life on the planet, not to mention all the other critters, what was the point? The elegance of the doctrine of equity? The usefulness of the principle of nemo dat quod non habet? None of it actually matters if the common law is not a useful vehicle in halting climate change. I'm afraid it is just a great exercise in the operation having been a success but for the fact that the patient died. Final point. What are my professional obligations? I am the head of Greenpeace in Australia-Pacific. I have a range of um, duties that sit upon me and I wouldn't like you to think that this is all an exercise in saying other people need to think about what's happening on their desks and their monitors. In the way that Anna has described, my job is to sit daily with the, the knowledge. I get a digest every morning that is the latest in what we know about the state of the world. Uh, I do believe the obligation is to to tell the truth, but I also know that the future is unpredictable. Uh, Greenpeace doesn't take money from government or business. We exist only because people want us to exist. We're a movement of people. We communicate with around a million people who are part of the Greenpeace movement in Australia and the Pacific. I've got a book uh, that sits on the shared desk we have at home uh, called the Greenpeace Global Warming Report, dated 1990, and it talks about the need for urgent action. I, every day, sit with this professional dilemma of what the hell do we do now? <laughs> every day. Every day. And the reason why it's not a crushing dilemma is because, as Rebecca Solnit says in her wonderful book, Hope in the Dark, she says there, change is not linear, the unexpected happens. Richard Flanagan recently has been instrumental in Australia in reminding us that radical change can come very quickly. And ultimately, if you have that sort of existential doubt inside yourself about what's life all about, well, if nothing else, if nothing else, this moment of climate change gives the most profound of answers to that. And so when I sit there in the morning with whatever the news, whatever the news has come in overnight, whatever the latest findings whatever the incompetence in Canberra, the latest demonstration that we don't live in a meritocracy, whatever the madness out of the US, the fires in the Arctic, the collapse, the collapse of the kelp forests in the Southern Ocean, the latest from the Great Barrier Reef, whatever that says, we all know that we've got us we've got us, we are here, we are here and we are not done yet, this is not over and I have no time at all for any fatalism that says well it's all too late because as we live and breathe our obligation is to be determined that it's not too Light. Thanks.
2: Three excellent speakers. So much. So many issues raised. So much to discuss. So I might ask our three speakers to come up to the podium and take a seat. And I guess just to lead off, one. There's so many themes tonight, but one thing that really came through, I thought quite strongly, was this whole issue around. I guess to quote Naomi Klein, really, you know, that this issue really does change everything. I mean, it goes everywhere. It changes everything in a physical sense, but also in a moral and ethical sense around the conversations we have, what the meaning of life actually means now, as sort of David was alluding to. Um, So I guess my question is, how can we we reclaim climate change as a sort of a critical... as the critical ethical and moral issue of our time, And, and what role do the professions play in this? Because it seems to me that many of the key professions have long sort of abrogated that, that older uh, uh, responsibility to altruism and the common good in favour of the God of Mammon in terms of profit and she value and what have you. And Quotes are made about accounting and law firms and that sort of thing, and that, that's pretty clear. So I guess to maybe start with David and work across, how do we actually reclaim ethics and morality in this space?
4: I mean, I think that... The, the point you make is right, and it's Klein's point, really, which is that the the arrival of the Washington consensus means a sort of general enfeeblement of everybody who's trying to do anything other than get rich, um, you know, uh, has come at entirely the wrong time. Um, I think probably built onto that, there's a sort of algorithm version of that, you know, sort of nobody has to think or take responsibility for anything anymore because algorithms will save us... Um, So there are those sort of two structural problems but at a sort of human level I think there's a sort of ethical version of, um, you know, that sort of uh, um, teenage kind of thing you do where you just add a certain arbitrary collection of words onto any movie title um, like, you know, when I was drunk or in my pants or maybe, God, please tell me I'm not the only person who ever played this game and you're now looking at me like I'm mad. So the, the point is that you add this selection of words onto any movie title, you know, Star Wars when I was drunk or Star Wars in my... I really am going very badly with this. Anyway, um, the point is that you can do this with In a Four-Degree World... And it means you just, if you do that in sort of everything you do, it just starts to overlay in a way that it can't be avoided. So, you know, take, for example, the, the, the wonderful contribution that all Maury Schwartz's publications, all the Black Ink publications have made. You know, they really, including the quarterly essay, they really have preserved something for us You on know, you know, climate change. But, you know, even there, the most recent issue of... of uh, foreign policy or foreign affairs, I forget what it's called, there's a hundred pages about Indonesia that doesn't mention deforestation or climate change. I mean, it's, it's it absolutely staggering. So, you know, instead of when I was drunk or in my pants, try in a four-degree world.
3: I don't think anyone knows what you're talking about with this one. <laughs> um, I guess in terms of how to... Uh, Move forward. Um, I guess I feel, in the sense, I I, I can only th- sort of speak for myself as a a journalist, and not have quite as much gravity as the men on either side of me. But um, there's this. I think it's in terms of journalism, we we need to press restart. Obviously, I think the one good thing that's come out of Trump in America is that. Journalists seem to be doing their jobs again um, and quite vigorously. Uh, And there is. um, Journalists need to. We need to. The amnesia is so frustrating when it comes to journalism. Uh, When, say, you know the nostalgia for john howard is is coming is hap- comes up quite a lot at the moment which i always i just find so um amusing and i don't understand why when it, every time there's a doorstop why the same questions aren't asked over and over and over um, what happened uh, with your energy policy in 1992 what happened um with Iraq? What happened? Uh, These questions just seem to just disappear, and I don't think they should. Um, So in terms of my role and my colleague's role, I think the stories, we are constantly covering the same stories, but we don't seem to be challenging the assumptions in those stories. I wrote a story about alcoholism in the Northern Territory, a story that's been written over and over and over and over, except I spoke to alcohol companies instead of Aboriginal people and I spoke to publicans instead of Aboriginal people and I rang up the Stanley Cask, Wine Cask people and spoke to them about their um, resistance to alcohol policy. And it wasn't a new story, but it was just turning around and asking the questions of someone else who should be held accountable. So that's how I see the way forward. Mm
2: -hmm. Great. OK. Well, I'm conscious of the time, so I think we should throw it open to the floor for questions. We have some roving mics running around. So you put your hand up over there, then there, then there. We'll take questions. Thanks.
0: Thanks for an interesting series of talks. Um, I thought it was interesting that you raised the issue about... um, the petroleum country companies and miners and that. But what about agriculture? I mean, yes, there's a drought at the moment, but they're one of the biggest um, producers of carbon dioxide around, but yet they're seemingly not being called to account for their, um, their actions. And people are actually supporting them through, like, buy a bale, which is only perpetuating the problems that we're currently seeing in that environment, in that particular industry.
3: Yeah, the drought has been an interesting... Um Display of hypocrisies and um, <laughs> and uh, political throwaway lines at convenient of convenience in its way. Um, yeah, I think there is much to be sit, to look looked at in terms of agriculture. And again, I, that's um, in my world in the, the land of reporting. I do feel like there is um, a real absence of clarity as to what. Farmers are thinking on the land uh, um, as an absence of clarity between what's the relationship between the Nationals and the Farmers' Federation now uh, and, and uh, the future of the land and um, there are various groups, there are farmers for climate and, and, and how this is going to play out. And I think, yeah, there are definitely big issues to be tackled there.
4: Look, I think there is a conversation that needs to be had about regenerative agriculture and there are people like Charles Massey and Nigel Sharp and others who are exploring the transition that needs to be made, but I think there are probably a couple of tricks that have gone on that have stopped the conversation from heading towards agriculture. One is, um, is not a trick, it's just the reality that the single largest contribution to global warming in Australia is our fossil fuel exports, so that's where the noise and the campaigning energy has been so often directed. But the other thing that I think is a trick is, um, in addition to failing to, pro- to come up with any policy at all, oh, my God, remember when Finkel was, as you say, considered the appalling compromise, and then we ended up with the neg that was um, you know, so wonderfully described by Simon Holmes, a as, never before in human history had so much time been spent by so many to produce so little. Um, uh, it, uh, uh, the, the Commonwealth Government has directed the conversation towards being about... In, with not, not defence, may I have be clear, um, about energy production, not any other sector of the economy, and I think that's been quite deliberate.
2: OK, I think we have a question there, and then here in the back, I think. Yeah. As um, Colonel Cummings stated, we are custodians of this land. So isn't it all our obligations to ask our political leaders and our government How much money are you receiving from fossil fuel companies and businesses?
3: People are trying to uh, reveal exactly what you're talking about. Um, There is a big push for a federal ICAC um, for corruption commission into politicians and public servants. Um, And the public donations has been constantly brought up and time and time again. Um, to no avail. I mean, we've all witnessed the last 10, 20 years of political hopelessness um, when it comes to leadership and I think a lot of these things are on the table. They just haven't been put into action. So, yeah, I'm not sure where...
2: I think there was a vote on it in the parliament just this week, wasn't there, last week, that the Greens had put up a proposal around um, donations and it was voted down by the Coalition and Labor. So. Yes. That's
4: right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the root cause of climate change is the the failure of governance in democracy. But, I mean, I don't... Far from... Just specifically in relation to public servants, I actually think we owe an enormous debt of gratitude to the public servants who act in the public interest and, and are subject to the whims and wins of politicians and who have put up decent policy... For decades, and have seen it destroyed by the sort of venal ship of fools that, that are elected to the parliament. I mean, I really, I'm not just sort of <laughs> saying that for your benefit, Ian, but I, I, I do think, you know, hug a civil servant when you get the chance because they've been doing their best.
2: We have a question here uh, and then next to it.
0: Thank you. I'd just like to mention Michael Moore this morning was interviewed by Democracy Now! And he said, um, it seems to me it's a race now, whether it's going to be nuclear war or climate change or maybe just another era of fascism that overwhelms us, you know, which, which one will get us first. But he said the Trump sort of side goes for the head wound and outside more people like all in this room, I imagine, and environmentalists and people who are intellectually approaching things uh, go for pillow fights. And so I thought that was, if anyone wants to listen to that, that's very good. But I do radio journalism and I just can't understand why the media don't follow the really good story. It's not to give hope, but it is about resistance. So I heard Waleed Ali on the radio the other day saying... Well, why doesn't someone do something? The problem is no-one's doing anything. And I'm in community radio and I get people ringing me up from tripods over the coal lines, stopping the coal trains in Newcastle. And they're only reported in the Newcastle Herald, a tiny bit on the Radio National. But why isn't the media reporting that? I think it's a cultural question. Are we not interested in this? I find it a thrilling story. I admire those people. And the Greenpeace has a long history of doing that sort of thing to get public eye, but you can only get those public um, dramatic events occasionally, but it has to be backed up by a huge swell of people saying, yeah, I get it, I'm with you.
2: So, so the question is around why we're not having this discussion on climate change in the media more generally.
0: Yeah. Oh, oh, and the other one was the 10,000 in the streets of Sydney, just about can't remember how long ago about coal, steam, gas and coal. About six months ago, Aboriginal people in the front. It was hardly reported. 10,000 people. They'd been sort of gearing up for that for six months. Lock the gates.
2: Anna, any thoughts on the journalism side and the media side about the conspiracy of silence on climate? On the what, sorry? Conspiracy of silence on climate, possibly,
3: or...? Oh, I, I'm not sure if it's silence so much as noise. Um, there's so much noise out there. I mean, I think they, those things were reported on, and they were probably reported on by good reporters. But then another, then the next story chomp, chomps in. It just and they keep on coming. Um, you know, we, we're in a 24. We used to think we were in a 24-hour news cycle. I don't know what we're in now, but it's sped up so fast it's near impossible to keep track of. It is, and I think that was reported. I remember reading about it. It's, but, I mean, that is, that's, a, that's an act in itself, and I think that's an important act, but there, we need more acts. We need tripods. We also need, as you say, resistance in accounting firms. Um, not all of us can get on tripods, and we need to understand that there are different types of heroes in this world, and we can all be heroic in our own small ways.
2: OK, we've got two people... Patiently waiting, so I might ask you to ask your questions together, and then we'll get responses given the time. So, ask one, and then the other, and then we'll go to response. Hi, I thought this is uh,
4: fantastic. Um, I uh, I'm, I'm the director of a mid-sized
2: advertising agency of almost twenty people, and I'm fascinated by behavioural behavioural change and how people make decisions. My agency might make the right kind of ethical decision to choose to
4: work with certain clients and causes, but my, my 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 sector and my industry is notorious for not having the same ethical framework. So how do you unite a fragmented sector and industry to actually have a certain standards that's
2: that we, we that a four degree a four degree world should expect?
0: Um, Dave, this question's for you. I just wanted to know your thoughts on the divestment movement and is that where your hope lies? Because I see a real dearth in corporate leadership, whether there's a fiduciary obligation or not. Um, and I wonder, if, is, that, is that propelling uh, change at a pace that we should be uh, investing our energy in?
4: Um, well, look, I think divestment is one tool in the toolbox. I would certainly encourage it. But I think um, we might we might extend out the principle to a broader social divestment which is really the, sort of, um, the point of encouraging everyday acts of, of resistance, that, that no, no business is able to function ultimately when community consent is withdrawn. You know, if you can't get a... It is perfectly lawful to discriminate against a business on the basis that they mine coal. So you don't... They, it should be difficult to get premises to have offices... It should be difficult to find anyone who'll clean those offices. It should be difficult to find anyone who'll write a contract. You know, the, a broad-scale social divestment. But it doesn't, and I want to stress this, it's not, it's not wanting to do it in a sort of spirit of, of gotcha or domination or, you know, anger for anger's sake. I mean, it's almost in the spirit of sorrow or with a, with a hand out saying, come out of this, come on, we need you in other things... You know, it's time to get out of this industry. I mean, to some extent, we're all part of the coal industry because of the history of industrialisation and the history of this country. So, you know, together we need to build pathways out. Um, but there do need to be pathways out, and I think I think it's that that broader social divestment really. Um, Look, that, that thanks for the question about your industry. I mean, it, it is true that some industries, and I talk as a former lawyer, are more inclined to, you know, always go down certain paths. And we know um, the, the big global company, the name of which escapes me, that dreamt up the coal is life um, sort of bullshit of a few years ago. I mean, that, that was a, no doubt very lucrative account. I, I don't know your industry well enough to think how you might think through a strategy, but I have talked to some others within some other industries about how you might start. And it would involve a kind of um, a power analysis of the sector, what the regulation is, who are the players, where are the conferences, what are the standards, and and it involves some, some planning out of that, and I think probably you're right that you'll never get to the stage where the whole of the industry is doing the right thing. There probably will always be some gray caps who are just going to want to make money wherever they can. But I think that's, that's how you agitate the, the change of, of the space. It has to be that kind of methodical way. And I just you know, if, if I heard you're right, I thank you and your business for that act of leadership in saying, we're not taking that kind of coin. Thank you.
2: Okay. Well, we have, we have exceeded our time here this evening, so um, it's been a marvellous evening. I guess three themes that jumped out of me with our three speakers which we've been discussing. The need to have the conversation, the climate change conversation, the sometimes awkward conversation, but have it constantly all the time uh, and with everybody. Uh, looking at climate change from new angles and, and questioning some of our assumed... Uh, um, Assumptions there, um, framing climate change, and engaging with your professional communities around um, responsibilities, which are, I think are three very valid lessons from this evening. So please join me in thanking our three fantastic speakers. <clears throat> And I would just lastly like to thank again SEI and Michelle and Francis for all your work and and everybody else in making these four talks. So fantastic. Thanks very much. Have a great evening.